Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I am so excited to be on the line today with Dr. Diane Rigoni. She's the director of the Breadfruit Institute at the National Tropical Botanical Garden, located in beautiful tropical Hawaii. The Institute's mission is to promote the conservation, study, and use of breadfruit for food and reforestation. Diane is an authority on the conservation and use of breadfruit and has helped to lead a global renaissance to expand its cultivation and use. Dr. Rigoni has conducted horticultural and ethnobotanical studies on this important Pacific staple crop for more than 30 years, and get this, on 50 islands across Micronesia, Polynesia, and Melanesia. Through her extensive fieldwork, the gardens have established the world's largest collection of breadfruit, conserving 150 varieties of this amazing crop. The Institute launched a global hunger initiative in 2009 to distribute nutritious varieties of breadfruit for food security, sustainable agriculture, agroforestry, and income generation in the tropics. And now there are more than 100,000 breadfruit trees that have been distributed to 44 countries. I'm so happy to have you on the show, Diane. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you on your podcast today. Thank you. Well, and I was hoping to see you this summer in Jamaica. Congratulations on being um, awarded the Distinguished Economic Botany Award. We had to reschedule the meeting to next year because of the coronavirus, but I know it's going to be a fantastic talk. Well, it's going to be a wonderful meeting to bring everybody together in Jamaica, which is such an important center for breadfruit. Yeah. Well, why don't we start by just diving in slightly into the botany of breadfruit. I don't know how many people in the audience have ever heard of this unique fruit or even tasted it, but maybe tell us a little bit about where it's from, you know, what the scientific name is, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, well, breadfruit has a very deep and rich and long history going back millennia, beginning in the Pacific Islands. The the scientific name is Articarpus altalus for the main species of breadfruit, which is what people would be familiar with, typically seedless. And then there are other related species of breadfruit, but they are um, found in the Pacific Islands, Articarpus merionensis, and then Articarpus comansi, which is known as bread nut, and that's in the Pacific as well as other tropical countries. And what part of the breadfruit tree is eaten and how big do these trees get? Okay. Well, they, when they're growing in the, in the islands, they are quite large. They can grow 40, 50, 60 feet tall or more taller. So people have to climb the trees to harvest the fruit. The fruit is, it's interesting. They're, so they're, the male flowers come out first and there are several thousand little teeny tiny male flowers on one inflorescence. It's kind of club shaped. And the fruit is a similar structure. It's called a syncarp. Um, breadfruit's in the Moraceae family. So it's hundreds or thousands of little teeny tiny flowers that are on a central core and they fuse and, and develop and actually form the edible fruit. And so if they're seeded varieties, that's of course, they're diploids and they can be pollinated. But Pacific Islanders over centuries vegetatively propagated breadfruit and did a lot of horticultural work on it and developed a, a natural 
seedless triploid breadfruit. And so it's that starchy, dense fruit that most people eat, the edible portion. And it's really, it's, it's really unique to me in that it's one of the very few tree crops, perennial tree crops that produces the equivalent of an annual starchy carbohydrate staple crop like rice or wheat or corn. Wow. And just um, as a note of interest in the Maurice family, we also have other edible um, fruits like um, mulberries and, and jackfruit that people may have also tasted. It's fascinating. Yes, jackfruit's a distant relative. So I think many of the uses for jackfruit, I don't know of any seedless jackfruit, but um, the immature or green breadfruit um, could be similar to the way jackfruit's becoming used. But it's eaten as a starchy staple crop. So the fruit has to be cooked and it's, and it's very versatile. That's, that's great. So tell us a bit about the movement of this plant. Movement of plants is something that fascinates me because it really speaks to the relationships that people develop with plants. You talked about the development of all these um, varieties by local um, Pacific Islanders and how did it move to other parts of the world? I know you can find breadfruit now in the Caribbean as well. That's right. So in the Pacific Islands, the islands, the whole region, the biggest part of our planet was completely uninhabited several thousand years ago. And so you think of the, just the voyaging experiences and skill and bravery that people had to pack up a canoe and head off into the horizon. And one of the things they carried with them were, of course, their food crops. And breadfruit was one of the crops. So it came out of Pacific peoples in the South Pacific, came out of, South, came out of um, Southeast Island Asia, worked their way across this Western Pacific where they first encountered the wild seeded breadfruit in Papua New Guinea. And so this will be a very brief summary of, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of movement, but breadfruit was transported with these vast migrations and voyages of Pacific Islanders through the Pacific. So the South Pacific is south of the equator. So that would include Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa, Tonga, the Cook Islands, uh, French Polynesia. A lot of people call the whole Pacific Islands the South Pacific, but north of the equator, there's a huge group of islands, hundreds and thousands of islands and Micronesia, but they have different breadfruit varieties and also breadfruit that was brought together. So it, it was an, a really interesting, the movement of breadfruit through the Pacific, but the seedless and then seeded in the seedless types of breadfruit. But it was in French Polynesia, Tahiti, that the connection to the rest of the world happened. And so how did that connection happen? I know that there were some famous botanical figures involved, including Sir Joseph Banks, um, and then Captain Cook is also mentioned in this history. Um, what happened? Well, that's, um, that's, that's right. So Joe, um, Captain Cook was a renowned British navigator, explorer, captain, out voyaging throughout the, the world for the British Empire. And on one of his first voyages to the Pacific, he took this young naturalist along Joseph Banks and they went to Tahiti. 
And while they were in Tahiti, Joseph Banks became familiar with and pretty enamored with the breadfruit and with Tahitian culture. He did a lot of ethnobotanical work while he was there. He not only documented the plants, collecting herbarium specimens, materials, you know, he had artists with him, but also a lot of the information about the uses of plants. And he was very, really smitten with the breadfruit. And it was his efforts through his con connections to the British colonies in the Caribbean and the slave trade was looking at what are some crops that we could introduce into the slave colonies in the Caribbean as a food crop. So breadfruit has a pretty unpleasant origin in, in, in the Caribbean because it is based on the reality of slavery at that time. So Joseph Banks and a lot of the um, plantation owners in the Caribbean were introduced in, in, interested in introducing this breadfruit tree because it's a starchy staple tree that they believed would provide a good nutritious source of food with little care. And they commissioned a Captain Bly who on the bounty went to Tahiti and spent six months with his crew because he was there for the wrong time to collect propagating material. And because the breadfruit in the Caribbean, in Tahiti were seedless, they had to collect root material and shoot. So that's why they spent so much time in Tahiti. And then they headed back to the Caribbean and the crew decided they didn't want to go on this back to England and they want some of them wanted to go back to Tahiti so they had the infamous mutiny on the bounty near Tonga and they sadly threw all the breadfruit trees overboard and they also um, put Captain Bly and some of the non-mutineers into uh, one of the small ship vessels. So that's a pretty epic voyage that people do know because of books and movies but it's really a very small, in my opinion, a very small part of the story about breadfruit and it's important in not only the Pacific, but the rest of the tropical world. So the, the journey of breadfruit from Tahiti to the Caribbean did continue. The British were very serious about this. So after the mutiny on the bounty and Captain Bly and his small crew sailed west, and made it to Timor and then back to England. And the British Admiralty commissioned another ship, two ships actually, and the Providence. And they went back to Tahiti and they collected breadfruit trees again and successfully introduced breadfruit to first to St. Vincent to a small botanical garden and then to Jamaica. And that was in 1793. And so that is how breadfruit made it to the Caribbean islands. Previous to that, a few years earlier, the French were also involved in getting breadfruit to the region, to their colonies, and they introduced the seeded breadfruit or bread nut to their French colonies. So those two similar, actually very similarly related species of breadfruit bread nut were introduced about the same time. The story and, you know, the writings um, at that time are that, you know, the, the slaves would not accept or eat the breadfruit. Trees were planted, but, oh, and that, so the whole thing was a failure. But over a couple of generations, the trees and the food did become accepted. And today, breadfruit is a vibrant, important part of Caribbean cultures on many, many islands.
Wow, that's quite a journey. And um, yeah, it's, can you take some, a moment to describe a little bit about what this fruit would have looked like to them or what it looks like today? How large is it? Is it the size of an apple or a cantaloupe or a melon? Like how, what does this thing actually look like? Uh, well, that's a great question. So the name breadfruit came from the fact that when the first English voyagers to the islands came up upon this fruit. So it's this large green round or oval fruit could be as, you know, it's about the size of a cantaloupe. Um, some are larger. They range in weight from typically half a kilo a kilo to ones that are as large as four to five kilos depending on the variety and it's green and it has a kind of pebbly bumpy skin and it has to be cooked and when it's cooked at the mature stage when the maximal starch development it it's baked or steamed or boiled traditionally in the pacific islands but the most common way it was prepared was roasted in a fire and at that stage the skin turns black and then you peel off the skin and the flesh inside is kind of doughy and that's where the name breadfruit came from in English is that these voyagers saw this fruit hanging on the tree kind of looked like a head kind of roundish or oval but roasted in the fire it reminded them of their staple food back in England and Europe, which is bread. Wow. And so when you say they roast it in the fire, are they actually putting the entire intact fruit into the fire and then yes. it's up? Okay. Okay. Yes. They, sorry to interrupt. They are putting the, the entire fruit into the fire. They make a hot fire and, and it's black and fit. So it's pretty much like you could put a potato in a, in a barbecue when you're barbecuing, but usually you wrap it in foil. Uh, you, you can also, um, in these traditional cooking methods, which are fire related, they're called earth ovens because most Pacific, Pacific Islanders didn't have pots or crockery. So they developed this really interesting way to prepare, to cook all their foods, which are called earth ovens, which is a shallow pit, or in Hawaii, a deep pit that you line put stones in you build a hot fire on top of the stones heats the stones you put the food on the hot stones after the fire dies down and then you cover it up with leaves and sometimes even earth and cook the food that way hmm. that sounds sounds amazing so it's got this kind of bread-like consistency consistency inside and what does it taste like is it sweet bitter neutral that is one of the hardest questions to answer. <laughs> it tastes like breadfruit. It's not, it's, it's like rice or potatoes. They, how would you describe what a rice potato tastes like? Tastes like rice or potatoes. So it's a starchy kind of bland. Some varieties are more flavorful than others, um, but it's neutral. It's a neutral flavor, but a very pleasant one. I think it has more flavor than potatoes and certainly more flavor than most white, most white rice. Right. And so what, what, of course, we love to do with things like rice and potato and these very starchy foods is to pair it with very um, saucy, spiced food. So what are some of the dishes that you might find this um, fine bread fruit paired with? In the, in, the, in, the, in the Pacific, diets were traditional diets were 
pretty straightforward. They weren't very spicy. Mm. They were seasoned with, in Hawaii, a lot of seaweed. Um, salt, of course, sea salt. Not too many spices, though. Maybe turmeric, uh, which is in the ginger family. Usually, they were the, it would be coconut, fresh grated coconut that would be squeezed and made into coconut cream. Mm. And today, though, people are adopting and creating all these just amazing ways to cook and prepare breadfruit in the Pacific, in Hawaii, and the Caribbean. It's just because they have such a melange of cultures from all over the world. So all of those cultures have brought in their spices, the way they cook, what they cook, and how they cook it. And they've incorporated breadfruit into that. Wow. And what is the geographic range of breadfruit? Now, I'm wondering, would it grow even as far north as, as kind of central Florida, or is it found primarily lower in the Caribbean? Breadfruit is a, is a tropical crop, so sadly, it will not grow on the U.S. mainland except in southern Florida. And even in southern Florida, which has freezes, breadfruit doesn't really like it or do well if the temperature goes into the into you know the i think fahrenheit here into the 50s for any length of time so it's a true tropical tree there are some trees in florida and people are planting more trees in southern florida down near the keys and even up into miami i've seen a tree as far north as palm beach in a little microclimate hmm but it's one of those crops that to experience it or taste it at this point, you really have to be in an area that grows it because it's been a staple crop for so long and it fell into disuse in a lot of regions over the past 50 years as diets and food habits changed around the world. And so people are really just starting in the past decade to look at breadfruit again in, in the islands and the places it's grown as a staple crop and a crop that could and should be grown locally and more should be grown locally. So it's not really at a point where if you lived in say Chicago or San Francisco or Roanoke, Virginia, where I'm from, that you could go into a market or a health food store or even online and find value added breadfruit products. In the areas where it is cultivated, how many times does it fruit a year and how long do those fruit stay stable or shelf stable after they're harvested? Productivity and the production of a tree is, it depends on the location and it depends on the variety. So, there, so the more variety diversity you have, the, more, the longer your season can potentially be. So that was one of the research projects we looked at with this incredible collection of breadfruit. We, had 100, we have 150 varieties growing together in what's called a filled gene bank. So they're grown as live trees. And having them in what's called a common garden setting allowed us to do research on, on breadfruit to better understand its diversity and many attributes of it that you really couldn't do just from being studied it in the field. That can give you a lot of great baseline information, especially, most importantly, you know, what the people who grow and know about it. 
but we did a project. We wanted to see was it possible to have year-round production of fruit. And so we did a 10-year-long study, seasonality study, looking at the phenology of the trees in the collection. We looked at 220 trees every two weeks and recorded data on them of fruiting stages, male flowers and fruit at different stages. And we, so there were some trees, there were about eight patterns of, of, of production. So some trees had one, one peak, one, one production season of several months. Others had, a lot of them had like one big season that was three to four to five months long. Then there was a lull and then they'd fruit again. There were a few varieties that did produce fruit almost year round. But in general, they tend to produce a lot of fruit, hundreds of fruits, uh, over a few months period, three, four, five, six months. And so um, dealing with that fruit is, is, is a question because it is very perishable. So uh, if you pick a fruit, again, depending on the variety, at the mature starchy stage, it will soften within two to three days, maybe a few days. Oh, wow. So that makes it difficult for international trade. It does, and even for local use. So the way Pacific Islanders dealt with that was, of course, eating breadfruit in season, excess fruit, ripe fruit, fallen fruit was fed to the pigs. And pigs are an important part of your kind of whole food sustainability systems in the Pacific Islands. It was um, looking at was a way to preserve breadfruit. And so that was one of the things I was especially interested in and devoted a lot of field work to studying in the Pacific were traditional methods of preservation of breadfruit and ones that were obviously to study it, which ones were still persisting. And one of those was fermentation, pit fermentation. So taking mature starchy fruit at the firm stage, peeling it, cutting it into chunks, soaking it in sea, sea salt in the, in, the, in the water for a day to start, start uh, a process. Um, I guess that'd be like brining it. Yeah. And then putting it into either, if you pre-soaked it in salt water or not, putting it into a leaf line pit, usually a leaf, a pit line with uh, banana leaves mm-hmm. and covering it up making it as airtight as you could, putting soil on top and leaving it into the, in the pit. And these pits are the semi-anaerobic process of fermentation would be opened up and it was all part of very, even today in like Ponape and Micronesia, there are you know, tributes and rituals associated to with when you take the first fermented breadfruit out, and how you prepare it. And it has to be cooked. You can't eat it raw out of the pit. And that those pits, that breadfruit in those pits would last years, if not decades. I wow. personally, I spoke with someone who had been involved in doing this. He was shown, his family still made pits. I was able to participate in the entire process of, of making a pit and opening a pit. He told me the oldest pit he knew of was 30 years old. Wow. That he had personally experienced. So it was a very ingenious way for Pacific Islanders to figure out a way to preserve large harvests and also to have a backstop during times of drought or famine or warfare when you needed a supply of food. 
Yeah, it's it's like really important to food security there, I can imagine. And when these come out of the pit, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of this as a, I'm assuming it's a lactic acid fermentation process using the brine. Um, are they much more acidic in flavor or do people grade the, 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 or rate the flavor based on how acidic they become through this process? Or is there a certain kind of peak stage that's most preferred? I think it's more um, depending on the culture. It's it's a, it's a timing when you take it out, like the first when you take it out after a month, because it's tied in with the whole breadfruit season and uh, tribute season, a feasting season. To believe it or not, still goes on in some of the Pacific Islands. Mm. But it is a tar it is tart, it is sour, and so it it turns into this amorphous dough-like mass, and it it is it adds. I talk to people, especially older people, who, who this, it has disappeared in a lot of Pacific Islands. So very few people in very few islands. On some islands, it's completely disappeared. The older people would tell me how much they remembered the taste. And as children, they didn't like it. Most children don't like it because it's too sour for them. But older people like the taste and it added um, flavor and tartness to their pretty bland traditional diet. Yeah. And when you, you mentioned that they cook it when it comes out of the pit too, are, are they, how are they cooking this and preparing it as a meal? Are there varieties of ways that they prepare it? Not that I saw it. So you don't, um, what they would do when you take it out of the pit, you, you have to knead it. And because um, there might be little pieces of the core in it that didn't, don't ferment and break down. So you knead it till it becomes, um, smooth more smooth textured and i i help do that and it is it's kind of like kneading bread but it but i could definitely feel it the acidity on my fingers as i did it and afterwards and so what they'll typically do is they will grate fresh grated coconut and they'll mix that fresh grated coconut in with it um, just to to make it less tart but then they'll make it into kind of a loaf shape and then they put it into the fire wrapped in banana leaves or into the pit to cook with breadfruit and the other things. That's great. It sounds fascinating. I really, I've always wanted to travel to the Pacific Islands. It's one of the places I haven't yet visited. And I just think it'd be so cool to be able to see one of these pits. And how, how large are these pits? I mean, how, how much breadfruit are we talking about here? Are we talking about the size of like a small bucket load or more of a larger trench? Well, the pits that I observed, and this is mainly in Ponape and Micronesia, the pits were, well, I'm sitting at a round table, and this table is about three feet across. So the, the pits would be maybe about that size and deep enough that if you stood in one, it would come up to your mid thighs. Hmm. And so to, they held about 300 fruit. Wow. Usually. But there are accounts of pits that held thousands of fruit and in the Marquesas Islands there were huge stone line pits so stones were put into these pits and there were pits recorded that held up to you know they would put 10,000 fruit into a pit wow so it depends on how the manpower you have how many people you have and what kind of production you have but it's more now how many people you have to do it 
And it's really interesting that Pacific Islanders are modernizing the technique. And so instead of putting it in a pit, they're putting it in metal containers like big cooking pots or even coolers or putting it in plastic trash bags and then inside a trash can. And some people even put a, the leaves in the metal can, but then you cover it up. So it's a cleaner product. And so there are Micronesians living here in Hawaii who are doing that, who are just making it in like a five gallon bucket. That's fascinating. A lot of possibilities, obviously, with as you know, the importance of fermented food for for breadfruit in 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 the fermented pro, a fermented product. Yeah, and is there is there any sort of um, breadfruit festival that's held with in, in conjunction with the gardens every year? Not with the with the garden. The National Tropical Botanical Garden has five gardens. So one in where in Florida, the Kampong in Miami, but here in Hawaii, on Kauai, we have two gardens and in Hana. So the main breadfruit collection is in Hana, Kahanu Garden. And every year there is a cook-off. Ulu is what breadfruit is called in Hawaiian. So every fall in conjunction with Aloha festivals, which is a big cultural event statewide, we have uh, an Ulu contest, cooking contest. And you can enter breadfruit and appetizers, soups, breads, baked goods, desserts, entrees. I'm amazed at the creativity that people make and what they do with it. So every year we have that cook-off. And then we did the period of a decade from 2010 to 2009, um, pretty much a decade where the active promoting of breadfruit in Hawaii and so we did the festivals in conjunction with that that had cooking and demonstrations so it was a way to promote breadfruit. In the Puerto Rico there's been a breadfruit festival held in a community there for I think they're going on to 29-30 years. Oh cool yeah. yeah and what's your what's been your favorite way to eat breadfruit so far? <laughs> There's so many ways. Um, I don't like ripe breadfruit, soft, sweet ripe breadfruit, so I'm not a fan of um, dishes that are sweet. But because uh, I got my taste eating breadfruit in the Pacific Islands, so the traditional way of roasted in the fire or, or kind of baked in the oom with coconut cream. But more more contemporary uses would be, I think, like a gratin. Breadfruit oh. gratin, like scalloped potatoes, but replacing breadfruit. And I make breadfruit salads, ulu salads, instead of potato salads. So those are kind of um, my dishes that I will make. And I substitute it for potatoes and a lot of things. So if I'm making a stew or a soup and I would put potatoes in it, I'll put breadfruit in that. That's great. Well, from a, from a nutritional point of view, we know that breadfruit is, of course, rich in carbohydrates. Um, I believe it's also rich in vitamin C. Have there been any studies on the health values of breadfruit, or are there any traditional medicinal uses or applications that you've observed in your, in your research? I didn't focus on medicinal uses of, of breadfruit, mainly because, well, I was interested in breadfruit as a crop and the agroforestry and the horticultural and the, the food uses of it. The medicinal, 
I didn't, I did only document peripherally because as you know well, doing medicinal research can be fraught with problems in working with people sharing or wanting to be willing to share their information. And so I, there's a lot of information in the literature about traditional uses, like the leaf is, dried leaf is used to, as a tea for diabetes in the Caribbean. But breadfruit, in the, being in the Moraceae family, has a very sticky white sap, and mm -hmm. that sap with very important uses medicinally. Um, it, I've read I not, I, where it was used to um, treat thrush, mm -hmm. uh, which is a fungus, fungus. and yeah. also um, other medicinal uses, the, the roots, the inner bark, all had medicinal uses, but the only one that I personally observed was someone using the tip of the, the leaf to get something out of somebody's eye, using the liquid to kind of, I think, suck out a piece of dirt in somebody's eye, <laughs> which was kind of interesting. And I've read that, you know, the, that those uh, petioles were used for ear infections. Oh, interesting. But the food aspect, absolutely, and nutritionally, and we did, again, that was one of the big research projects that we did on the breadfruit collection and looked at nutritional composition. So that work was done with Dr. Susan Murch at the University of British Columbia at Okanagan. She had a graduate student who worked with her, a couple of them. So the protein content, the vitamins, the minerals. So some varieties are, so breadfruit is not, is a high complex carbohydrate, good source of fiber, it's a lot of fiber, doesn't have a lot of protein, one to 3%, but it's important in that the protein is complete. So it has all of the essential amino acids. Mm -hmm. And we looked at raw fruit and then fruit dried into flour and one variety, and it's been the, one of the varieties that we've distributed most widely globally, had the highest content of protein when dried into a flour, 7.6%. Wow. Which is, which is very good. And then there's one variety, again, one that we're distributing. So the varieties that we've been working to distribute are the most highly nutritious for different nutrient profiles and also other attributes about them, the fruit quality, the flavor, the growth habit. And this variety is very high in the minerals, but also the pro-vitamin A carotenoids. Oh, interesting. And then there are varieties that are very high in iron, and iron deficiency is a terrible scourge globally. Wow. Well, tell us a bit more about this, this um, Global Hunger Initiative, and what is the process like of distributing these varieties and have local communities where these are now being cultivated, is, has there been broad acceptance or how are they incorporating more breadfruit into their um, diet? Oh, that's a great question. It's each of our projects and the projects, I think each one has to be viewed as proof of concept. So mm -hmm. it started with us wanting to be able to, you know, identify good quality varieties in our collection 
and sh and shared them and we had first had to figure out a way to propagate them because you can't really distribute trees even locally and especially internationally using traditional methods of root or shoot root propagation because of plant quarantine issues. So we worked with Dr. Murch's team and then with a private horticultural company to develop micropropagation tissue culture methods. And so it was all mainly, it's all been pretty much pilot projects. So, you know, because the garden and the institute are just a few staff and we're really not set up to implement and just and manage or coordinate tree planting projects um, in Hawaii or around the world. So it was always through partnerships. So an example in Hawaii is we launched a plant a tree of life project through a grant funded project and over three years distributed 10,000 trees in Hawaii working with over 200 organizations. So one of those organizations, several of them, they work with the schools. So they work with the groups and the communities and organizations to do them. And then internationally is the same way. So it was working with groups and organizations that wanted to get trees and figuring out that mechanism of how to get trees to people. So depending on the recipient and the, the level and the, the organization that was working with them, especially Trees at Feed Foundations worked a lot and Haiti in particular. So they did a lot of hands-on work, not only helping get the trees into the country and getting the trees through a nursery because they come in as small plants, rooted plants, but then helping people set up um, simple processing ways to dry it and make it into flour. So it's really been place by place, but I get reports from people from all over the world send me pictures saying, oh, my tree is fruiting. And so that's so I think, cool. I think it's, yeah. it's community wide. Uh, I mean, community by community, group by group. So there's really no unifying theme about what's happening or where. As I said, they're all proof of concept. And right now we're working at, we haven't been, a, we haven't been distributing many trees the past couple of years and we're looking at reinvigorating the tree production and um, distribution channels with a horticultural partner to make trees available again. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so, so important to translate the research, I think, out to communities and make, and make these important nutritional crops available to people. Um, that's really great. So Diane, and, yeah, go, go I'll tell you what, just one quick other thing. So most of the requests and most of the projects have been with groups and peoples that already know breadfruit. So it's mm -hmm. not a new crop. It's more, they want, they don't have access to good quality planting material and wanting different, some different varieties. That's great. Yeah. Well, Diane, you've really committed your, your career to the study of this amazing crop. Where do you see the future? What, what, is, what is your vision for the future of, of breadfruit for people across the tropics? Well, my vision is, one, the conservation of the collection to continue that conservation work and research on the collection. And again, making more good quality varieties available from our collection. And really 
being a source of information and resources for people who are trying to use breadfruit and adopt breadfruit. And for me, it's trying to get more, write more, write, write about, you know, a lot of the materials and information that I've, I've collected and worked on for decades and just need to really put together and write. So yeah, for me personally, that's the, that's my main focus, but I'd like to see people, more people growing and using breadfruit and having, because it it's, can create and help provide such resilient, sustainable food systems. And I'd like to see it part of this whole discussion that we all need to have now about what is resilient agriculture and how does it benefit the small farmers, the smallholder farmers who are growing breadfruit and other crops. Okay. I don't want to see breadfruit become another plantation agriculture crop. Yeah. And, mo and monocropping is not the answer here, as, 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 you, as you've highlighted, that having this variety and um, all these different varieties offer different um, benefits in terms of fruiting time to nutritional content um, and so on. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's been a pretty amazing journey and uh, the fantastic project to decide to work on for my PhD because it's taken me on this lifelong journey and I learn and something new about it every day, every time I talk to someone else. That's great. Well, I have one last question for you um, for the audience is once travel does eventually open back up following um, our recovery from COVID, um, is, is it possible to visit the Breadfruit Institute and, or the National Tropic Botanical Gardens? Absolutely, our gardens are all open to the public and once, the visitor programs can reopen and our gardens can reopen absolutely and all of the tour visit information about visiting our gardens is available through you know the, the gardens website and at the mcbride garden i'm at our headquarters on Kauai. we have a really interesting agroforestry demonstration project that we started two three years ago to transform a monoculture of about 20 breadfruit varieties in, into a diverse agroforest. So that's at the McBride Garden on Kauai. And then in Hana is the main collection that you can see when you go in there. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Diane, for all the amazing work that you've done with this fascinating crop and for sharing your knowledge with us. Oh, thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you again 2021 at Jamaica when we all come together for the ec economic botany and ethnobiology meetings. That's right. And we'll definitely have to celebrate over a nice dish of breadfruit. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thank you for this opportunity. It's wonderful to chat with you. Thanks. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 quarantine period. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere that you stream podcasts. You can find out more information on the Global Hunger Initiative and breadfruit research at the National Tropical Botanic Garden website at ntbg.org. We've got a fabulous lineup of topics and shows for you this season, so be sure to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.